Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Mike Pointer, and this is the Heredity Podcast. At the start of a genomics project, there are a lot of decisions that have to be made. We're limited by time and budgets and sampling permits, and it's hard to know how best to allocate those resources to get the best data to address that burning research question you've been thinking about for years now. One of the biggest choices is which type of sequencing to use. Whole genomes offer the most information but are more expensive, whereas reduced representation sequencing approaches, such as RADSEQ, offer the chance to sequence a subset of the genome, but in many more individuals for the same total cost. The paper we're looking at in today's episode offers some insight into the relative performance of these two approaches when the aim is to learn about the demographic history of the study population. I'm joined by the two authors. Could you start off by telling us who you are and what you do? My name is Daria Marchenko. I'm a postdoc at Trent University in Canada. My name is Aaron Schaefer. I'm an associate professor at Trent University, and my lab research is population genetics of wild organisms. And let us know a bit about the background that's led to this work. Yeah, okay, so I'll start. So the the main purpose of the study was to analyze this large genomics data set for the North American mountain goat. So this is the species that Aaron kind of started working on, and then I joined in as a PhD student. So we're lucky to have those collaborations with um, government agencies that Aaron and our counterparts in Alaska have developed. So we do have access to this amazing uh, tissue bank. So there's a lot of questions that we're able to answer just by having this range-wide large data set. And the second purpose of the study was to compare and contrast uh, two different I guess, sequencing approaches to looking at genomic data sets. So generally, it can be split into whole genome sequencing, where you just sequence everything that you have in the sample and the reduced representation approaches. So those where you kind of um, sample down the genome so by cutting it at certain locations and then that way you're able to capture less information per individual but more information if you combine them together in the sequencing link. Um, what was nice about the study too was we sort of had this inadvertently stumbled upon this transition zone where whole genome sequencing became much more accessible. So Daria can correct me if I'm wrong but we probably did the RADSeq sequencing in 2017, yeah. plus or minus a year. And at that time, you, people won't remember this, but Illumina had some restrictions on whole genome sequencing, which made it much more costly. The HiSeq X, which is no longer in service at the time, um, was sort of restricted to high coverage data. And so we initially had the idea to do a RADSeq study, but then as Illumina became, whole genome sequencing became more accessible, we ended up building this really large whole genome data set, which allowed us to directly contrast them. I don't think that was initially our design. It just sort of organically happened that way where over the course of Daria's PhD, we just built a massive RADSeq data set 
and a pretty large whole genome sequencing data set, which allowed us to have this comparison. Perfect. So you have all this data that's from the goats, but it's almost a methods paper, right? Yeah, that was a change kind of throughout the evolution of this paper, the focus change. So now we have both, um, both a compare and contrast of the methods plus the mountain goat case study. And I'll just highlight, goat is a bit of a misnomer. Mountain mountain goat is a it's Capernet, so it's uh, it's not related to true goats as mo- like a, people would think of when you say goat, they think domestic goat. Mountain goat is not closely related at all. Um, it's in the Capernet, which would be more closely related to muskox. Uh, I mean, uh, mountain goats are in goats are in caprids, but uh, it's more closely related to muskox than it is to a domestic goat. Um, and as Daria said, yeah, like. A good uh, highlight for the undergrads, like the evolution of a paper, you're dealing with reviewers and their input and trying to appease editors and referees. And so we, it's a bit of a method, it's a hybrid paper of asking some interesting evolutionary questions of mountain goats, but also this, this uh, methods, you know, com- comparing and contrasting these two data sets. Uh, okay. Sorry, mountain goats. I genuinely didn't know. Great. So you've got these two threads to the paper. Now, within each of these, could you tell us a bit more specifically what your aims were? Yeah. So our main goal to begin with was to study the mountain goat at the genomics level. So Aaron has done some papers with microsats across the range, but we wanted to see how the data changes. Plus, we had um, a hypothesis about having a northern refugia for the mountain goat during the last glacial maximum. So uh, most species in North America have like the southern refugia that is confirmed by fossils. Um, same goes for the mountain goat. But uh, there is a hypothesis of having a Beringian uh, refugia as well, which we don't have any fossils for mountain goats from that area. But that has been um, shown with Aaron's work by having some haplotypes that seem to originate from the north. So that was one of the questions we wanted to answer with us, as well as sort of connectivity across the whole range and kind of the, the deep demographic history um, for the goat. And the, the methodological aspect of the of the project was, and I think what Daria did nicely is a few studies have compared whole genome versus RADseq, but often with the same samples, same number of samples. So 20 RADseq samples versus 20 whole genome samples. What we did was our design, I think, was more reflective of what researchers do, where we had hundreds of RADseq samples, and we compared that to, I think, in the end, 35 whole genome sequences. And we really wanted to understand, do the demographic inferences, you know, refugia, migration, do those differ between the data sets, as well as signatures of, of adaptive divergence? Yes, I think that's a really important point. And I mentioned this in the introduction, that generally when we're approaching a project, we've got questions that we want to answer and we've got an amount of money and there's a trade-off between how much of the genome you can sequence and in how many individuals. And as you say, the that practical trade-off is much better represented in how you've split your sampling here than in previous comparisons. The trade-off too, and Daria can attest to this, there's the, the financial component, which is very real. But the lab work, like I've done thousands of RADseq library preps, but it is, I mean, it's it's like everything, it's recipe based, but it's you're doing everything in triplicate or quadruplicate. And there are a lot of steps, a lot of plastics. It's just very time consuming. 
Um, and a lot can go wrong in contrast to whole genome sequences where we generally outsource library prep. And so you send off 20 DNA samples and then, you know, six to eight weeks later, you get your data back. And it's just like, there is that practical trade-off too, which I think we tried to articulate a little bit in the paper, but that sort of was organically our experience where by the end it was like whole genome sequencing is just data wise. We're getting the same story, but also time and stress wise, it, it seems to work, <laughs> seems to be uh, have that advantage. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that with as somebody with not a lot of lab experience prior to this PhD, that was a lot more stressful to do because the steps build on each other. So if you mess up on one step, then your whole library is done <laughs> yeah yeah my general experience of being a phd student is learning how to do this one difficult thing so i can do it this one time before i have to go and learn how to do the next difficult thing <laughs> it's nice to hear that other people get things wrong too because that doesn't end up in the paper right the methods make everything sound like they were done easily and in half a day rather than the six months that it actually took <laughs> So at some point, you needed some samples. Where did these come from and how did they come to you? Yeah, so our samples come from a hunter-harvested individual. So um, in most jurisdictions, mountain goats are allowed to be harvested. And in most government authorities do require the animal to be uh, presented for uh, for a check once the hunter has harvested the animal. So they're able to grab a small sample of tissue at that point. So that was with collaborations with um, government authorities across U.S. and Canada. And also a few, a really small number of the samples come from ear punches uh, from collared animals. That sounds like a good setup. We've got people out there collecting your samples for you and paying for the privilege as well, I guess. Yeah, we're the uh, we're on everyone's, you know, uh contact list when they get a, any government agency once they collect samples they know to contact our lab so we would have the largest tissue repository in existence which isn't i guess that's something to brag about but uh we're sort of the go-to lab for mountain goat genetics and genomics yeah cool so we're getting towards the results now is there anything you want to add on the methods before we get there yeah i just wanted to highlight kind of the main three data sets that we have so we have the kind of the really high coverage uh, whole genome sequence data set, just five individuals. Then we have the mid range whole genome sequencing, and then we have the RADSeq. So those are kind of the three main data sets that we use to answer our questions. Okay. Yes, that's useful. Thanks. And so what did these data sets tell you? What did you find out? Okay, so I'll start with, um, I guess, the, the biological uh, findings of this. So the mountain goat case study. So as a an alpine and northern specialist, mountain goats are kind of in a precarious position given the climate change and kind of the species moving up the mountain as the climate is warming. So for the mountain goat, we wanted to assess their genetic diversity and kind of the historic demography. What has, can we potentially explain how they got to the level of diversity that they are at now? So um, in our main findings, the the effective population size of mountain goats is quite low, and we also found kind of low genetic diversity across the range, which could be potentially problematic. Um, I know we have some studies coming out now with the contrasting neutral and functional diversity and potentially 
um, some species having a low effective population size for a while, but being able to adjust and persist with that um, low genetic diversity. But again, for the mountain goat, that's potentially uh, an issue. And then on the method side of it, our findings are consistent across the RADSeq and the whole genome sequencing. So this is kind of a positive and promising result uh, for potentially for researchers are trying to decide which method to go with. If you're going for kind of the basic demographic metrics, the results seem to be consistent, at least for in our case study. Uh-huh. Across all three data sets. Uh, so the across the mid-level whole genome resequencing and the RADSeq, so just with a sample size of the really deeply sequenced individuals, we only use those to answer a certain number of questions. So just modeling the his, historic population size with MSMC2. So yeah, uh, with just the four, you can't really do the environment associations with those. But in, in those cases even, right, Daria Lee, MSMC, everyone knows the you get these temporal plots. We all are familiar with them now, if any. The the changes there, would con- they would align with our daddy estimates of of temporal change in effective population size, more or less. Everything is suggesting very recent crash, i.e. the last, at the end of the last glacial maximum. Um, and so even though there, some things aren't directly comparable, the whole genome, high coverage, there are, like if we were to decipher the times and the, and the you know, the magnitude of change, they're very similar um, in that sense. And does this line up with what was already known about the species or is this all new stuff? Uh, do you want me to answer this, Daria? Cause it's my, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's new in the sense that the microsatellite, essentially the mitochondrial data suggested divergent refugia with population splitting 200 and something thousand years ago. The caveat being this is mitochondrial data. So there are some things we need to take into account with that. We don't see that signal with the whole genome. We have a single refugia, recent collapse consistent with during the last glacial maximum, one population south of the ice sheets. Keeping in mind, if people aren't familiar with glacial dynamics, this was happening. The It was cycling. So we had glaciers come, retreat, come, retreat. This is happening. The kroll Milankovitch cycles, I think it's every 240,000 years or something like that. So what the mitochondrial data likely picked up was during a previous glacial um, advance, there were two populations and those haplotypes, that signature has been retained despite what looks like sort of a panmictic population now. And so when they were in the southern, below the ice sheets, the mitochondrial haplotypes from the previous glacial cycles were were retained. And you can imagine how that could have happened. Maybe it was different mountain ranges. Um, I would say that was the biggest contrast to previous work that at least during the last glacial maximum, it, it seems consistent with only one refugia south of the ice sheets. Okay, I see. So that was the hypothesis that Daria mentioned earlier that came out of your PhD work. And you were able to refute that in this paper with the new sequencing. I guess overall, the result comparing the RADSeq and the whole genomes is nice, both because people should be able to choose whichever route best suits them, and it should work out either way, but also because you can imagine a scenario where your results had shown that results were not comparable between methods, 
and we'd have ended up with these two banks of literature that had each used one of the two methods and we didn't really know how to compare between them. Yeah, and I would say like we didn't, I don't know what your thoughts were, Daria, but the referees all sort of, this didn't seem surprising to them. Like nobody really pushed back. We made a pitch that hold, you know, if you have your choice, do whole genome sequencing versus RADSeq. And I think this paper saw through various iterations and journals, maybe seven referees and no one, it didn't, I think everyone has sort of recognized the transition where RADSeq is still valuable for certain things, but whole genome sequence sequence has a lot of benefits now that because it's more accessible, let's go that route. Um, that didn't seem to be controversial, I would say, but I think we just were, we presented it in sort of a nice design and layout where people could see the differences or the similarities, which really sort of hammered home that, yep, go with whole genome sequencing if you can. Yes, I agree. It was really nicely presented. I enjoyed reading the paper a lot. Now, as we're drawing to the end, do you each have a take-home message from the paper? Something that you'd like people to take away from reading it or something that you took away from doing the research? So I guess my takeaway message would be um, for the conservation and like persistent of mountain goats. I know that they're not an endangered species or not a species of concern and they're allowed to be harvested. But I think the study kind of highlights um, that, that the genetic diversity is low. So uh, we should be monitoring um, the range of the species across <laughs> the North America. I guess for me, um, it was very cool to see Daria continue with work for my PhD. And what was kind of, I guess my takeaway was in 2006, I met my PhD advisor, Dave Coltman, and we were talking about the project. And he said, we were in Montreal at a conference at a patio, and he looked at me and he said, you're going to find the effective population size of mountain goats is like four individuals. And I didn't believe him. We didn't find four individuals, but we found with, you know, almost 20 years later, what Daria showed was a very, very low effective population size. Um, and so highlighting Daria's comment about diversity and monitoring and potential, you know, could spell trouble for mountain goats with rapid climate change. But um, just personally seeing almost 20 years later, us answer this question about effective population size of mountain goats was, pre was pretty cool. Yeah, nice. And then finally... Daria, would you mind reminding us of the title of the paper and maybe thank anyone who needs thanking? Okay, yeah. So the title of the paper is Contrasting Whole Genome and Reduced Representation Sequencing for Population Demographic and Adaptive Inference, an Alpine Mammal Case Study. And I'd like to, I guess in terms of the people to thank, I'd like to thank my uh, thesis committee members. So this paper has gone, started out as a thesis chapter, so a lot of people have read kind of the first versions of it. So my thesis committee members, Dr. Jana Freeland, Dr. Christina Davey, and Dr. Christopher Kyle, and then my examining committee, Marty Cardos and Paul Wilson. And then I think we would um, also just like to thank all of the people that provided samples. Um, that would be states, that would be provinces, that would be hunters, that would be indigenous communities, that would be research bios. Too many to list, but we do appreciate um, people providing samples for this basic research. Perfect. Thank you both very much for coming on to tell us about this paper.
As always, you can read Daria and Aaron's paper on the Heredity website at nature.com forward slash hdy. Also there are the two papers that are in my Heredity highlights for this episode. The way an individual's sex is controlled in amphibians is highly variable, and this makes them an interesting group in which to study the evolution of sex determination systems. However, a general lack of genomic resources for amphibians relative to other classes of animals means that the sex determination system is unknown for many amphibian families. In their recent heredity paper, Lorenzo Bertola and colleagues present the first genomic resource for Australopapuan tree frogs, a diverse family of over 220 species. Their linkage map provides evidence that green-eyed tree frogs use the XY sex determination system and paves the way for the inclusion of this group in comparative genomic studies across the amphibians. As we explored in a recent episode of the podcast, barriers to gene flow that lead to population structuring can be less apparent to us in the sea than on land. Another recent paper in Heredity, written by Manuel Vera et al., explores similar questions using a common cockle, a bivalve which is both ecological and commercial importance. The team sampled cockles from across the range, focusing particularly on cockle beds from Galicia in northern Spain and from southern Britain and Ireland. Their results showed that while Spanish beds represented a single genetic unit, the more complex currents and environmental variation in the northern part of the range had led to four genetically distinct clusters there. These findings, showing barriers to gene flow on a relatively small scale, will help to define management units for cockles, protecting their diversity. Along with those papers on the website, you can find out about submitting your own papers to Heredity. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society, and you can follow us on Twitter at Heredity Journal. I'm Mike Pointer. Thanks very much for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.